0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program.
1: Another Friday of anti government protests. This time they were dedicated to Syrian women.
2: These were modernists, democratic youth who wanted to change the Arab world.
1: The scenes are unprecedented, day after day of protest. The incredulity started with Tunisia, and after it moved to Egypt, and after we had Libya, and after it moved to Syria.
3: We may be in for another decade if Syria is not fixed. I mean, let's be realistic.
0: This month, the war in Syria entered its second decade. For ten long years of this brutal conflict, Geneva has been at the centre of diplomatic attempts at peace and at the heart of the humanitarian effort. Why has this war lasted so long? What mistakes were made? Were opportunities for peace missed? And did we expect too much of humanitarian workers?
2: Syria was a real setback where these besiegements, the bombing of hospitals, the bombing of schools, the bombing of bread
3: lines, it it was horrific. People, when they flee, you have little time to think, really. What are you going to take, for example? You just grab your children and you just get the hell out of there. In recent history,
1: I don't think there is something comparable to the disaster in, in Syria what you see, it's apocalyptic.
3: Over the last
0: year, I've been collecting interviews with people who've been deeply involved in the diplomacy and in the humanitarian work in Syria. Jan Eglund, now head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, and for several years, chair of the UN's humanitarian task force for Syria.
2: Could it have ended earlier? Yes. I mean, This is perhaps one of the major mistakes of Syria, little by little, too many started to treat it as if it was some kind of a continuous natural disaster. This was man-made from A to Z.
0: Eamon Garebe, the UN Refugee Agency's Regional Director for the Middle East.
3: Syria, it's still the largest refugee crisis we're dealing with. Five and a half million Syrians in the region and another uh, six million uprooted inside who decided to remain in their country. So if you talk about Syria, 24 million people, practically half of the population is displaced.
0: And Fabrizio Carboni, Director of Operations for the Middle East with the International Committee of the Red Cross.
3: As humanitarian, we
1: have to be always very humble and never forget why we were created. We were created to preserve human life and dignity, That's why we are a neutral organisation. That's why we don't comment on who's wrong and who's right.
0: I began by asking Jan Eglund what his feelings were when he heard about the first demonstrations in Syria in the spring of 2011.
2: When it started, I was in uh, academic work uh, through the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs and studied the Arab Spring as something very positive really these were uh, modernists democratic youth who wanted to change the arab world and i must confess i was uh, i was optimistic i saw this uh, in the long line of transition from uh, dictatorships from authoritarian regimes to more democratic more human rights oriented uh, societies and then came the backlash. And I even visited in February 2013 Aleppo, which was already then a divided city. I met with uh, guerrillas and, uh, of, of, of many different types. We saw the Nusra Front growing up at the time. And it was very clear that this was becoming a very polarised very bitter civil war,
0: but you touched on it there when it started, you at first thought this could be almost
2: positive this was positive. I mean, what happened in Tunis, Egypt, and then later with uh, with Syria and with uh, Yemen and elsewhere was positive. these were were students I could identify with uh, these were. Uh, You know, intellectuals, these were people who were campaigning for human rights. They went to the streets and they were met with bullets. They were met with repression. And little by little, they radicalized and uh, extremists joined. And there was armed uprisings. And it basically became uh, became, um, a, a civil war.
0: As the conflict escalated, aid agencies prepared to support civilians caught up in it. The UN Refugee Agency, Eamon Garebe remembers, was already in Syria, helping Syrians support refugees from another conflict in another country.
3: Syria, I mean, our presence there dates back to the Iraq crisis. Syria hosted a million Iraqis, opened their arms and opened their public services to Iraqis and they were very proud in doing so, helping their Iraqi brothers. They were, um, loved their country, they were self-sufficient, the livelihood, the uh, services within Syria was reasonable um, and therefore when things began to disintegrate and the conflict began to move into more of an armed conflict, I think these proud Syrians, they were one, extremely angry, They were very frustrated and there was genuine fear when they began crossing into Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey of where are we going with this and how long this is going to take. You know, if you put yourself in their shoes, the first question they were asking themselves, you know, what's the future going to look like? Um, Unfortunately, we all resigned to the reality that this conflict is not going to go away anytime soon.
0: Meanwhile, the ICRC's Fabrizio Carboni was posted to Lebanon. Did he realize as well, back then, that this would be such a long conflict?
1: When it started, no. In the first months, no. But when I reached Lebanon, and I have a very clear memory of in a night, during the night, we had, uh, I think it was 60,000 people who crossed into Lebanon. And I have a very clear memory when I saw these people arriving you know, and they just had their pyjama on them. I mean, it was just massive and abrupt and violent. I saw them, them getting there and, and I say, OK, here we are in, in something different.
0: The conflict became, as Jan Eglund explains, ever more complicated, ever more intractable.
2: It became also proxy war. This was the place where Saudi and Iran met Sunni and Shia met and you know foreigners were willing to fight each other to the last syrian i i it's been heartbreaking Uh, i followed now syria every single week for 10 years and it's been it's been heart-wrenching because it became in many places a bad guy against bad guy but there were so many good civilians in between them that suffered in this crossfire.
0: The ICRC, Fabrizio Carboni remembers, began to prepare for the long
1: haul. After, I would say, a year or two, it was clear that there was no clear way out of this. You had so many contradicting uh, narratives opposing each other that... It was hard to see how you can reconcile all those narratives, all the parties to the violence and the conflict in in Syria. it's It's a survival narrative. And therefore you have uh, what we have in in front of us, which is uh, a tragedy which has no uh, in recent history, I don't think there is something comparable to the disaster in in Syria. I went from, from Damascus, you crossed the you know the the suburbs of, of Damascus totally destroyed and after you go to OMS and after Aleppo, what you see it's apocalyptic. It's twenty years that I'm working in, in the humanitarian fields and I never ever saw or see something so massive. Their impact on Aleppo's
3: densely packed civilian neighbourhoods is devastating.
0: Syria's conflict was being fought with no heed to the laws of war the ICRC tries to uphold. It was as if the fundamental principles adopted after the horrors of the Second World War had been abandoned.
1: I visited the old city of Aleppo, you know, the souk of Aleppo, which is not just an historical centre for Syria. This is the common history of humanity. The old souk, which has hundreds, if not thousands of years of history, it was totally destroyed. You know, I mean, you have to see this. It, it, it's something which is breathtaking. And I was there with my Syrian colleagues from Aleppo, and almost all of them were crying. You know, we were walking into this destroyed souk, and they were all crying. And at one stage, we reached the spice market, who was totally destroyed. But there was still the smell of spices. You know, there was nothing left. There was only burn stones, collapsed building all around. But the, the smell of those spices, which were stored for thousands of years in those places, was still there. It's something which characterized, I think, the, the conflict in Syria. There was no limit. There is no limit. And that's to reach your objective, you're ready to destroy even your own history, who you are. How
0: do you actually keep calm, not lose your temper even, when you're talking to people who you know are allowing children to starve to death inside a besieged town?
1: You you keep your eyes on the ball, I would say. You keep your eyes on the final... Objective, which is to have access at all costs. You might turn action; it's not about you, you know. You have to swallow things I would never accept in my private life, but I would accept it in my professional life, as you might turn actor, because I need to get there. And it's not about my pride; it's not about my how I see myself. If I have to listen to somebody telling me things which are no are uh, just lies. OK, I accept it if I can move the lines and if I can get something to the people.
3: Ice has now gripped the town of Madaya, adding to the siege and starvation. Trucks carrying food and medicine finally arrive in Madaya.
0: While aid workers in Syria tried again and again to get food and medicines into the desperate civilians in besieged towns, in Geneva, Jan Eglund as chair of the UN's humanitarian task force, tried to persuade the warring parties to show mercy.
2: I remember it was, I mean, it was too much at times, really. It was, uh, you know, sitting up at 2am and and then again at 6am to have phone calls on uh, regarding the fall of, of the besieged areas in Aleppo, the extreme drama of people starving to death in besieged areas. We were able to have this diplomatic activity that was able to have some progress. It was because children had starved to death in some of the besieged areas. Within 72 hours after we initiated the work of this humanitarian task force, convoys was rolling going into besieged areas a besiegement really is is the middle ages it means that an army is starving out those armed opposition fighters inside an urban area and they seem to not care that they also starve out women and children that is a war crime and we were able to some extent to get through but we were not able to lift the besiegement. There were only small steps forwards and many, many setbacks.
0: Do you think the respect for, I mean, you mentioned war crimes, do you think the respect for international law has also taken a real beating over the last 10 years?
2: Yes, I I fear that happened in, in Syria. Again, the long line should be that we are, Increasingly adhering to the laws of civilization and the laws of war, human rights conventions, and so on, as we become, you know, more sophisticated as civilizations. Syria was a real setback, where these besiegements, the bombing of hospitals, the bombing of schools, the bombing of bread lines—it it was horrific.
0: Just coming back to the mention of war crimes, do you anticipate, do you hope for a tribunal, for prosecutions? Would you, for example, see yourself testifying?
2: Well, I hope for accountability, yes. Because if there is impunity, you know, uh, why would warlords anywhere really shield civilians, follow the rules, not kill uh, their uh, prisoners of war? But um, no, I don't see myself as a, uh, a witness because I'm a humanitarian. Humanitarians, again, have to try to not be part of processes that can be easily politicized. We try to be neutral and partial and independent. But I, yes, I'm glad that there are many documenting the war crimes. And I hope for an hour of accountability, I don't like anyone getting away with murder. Foot
1: pushing toward Western Europe. More than 16,000 refugees streamed into Austria just in the past two days. Meanwhile,
0: Syrian families were voting with their feet, fleeing the war in their country. While Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey hosted millions, in 2015, tens of thousands began to try to get to Europe as well in what Europe called the migrant crisis. The UN refugee agency, Eamon Garebe says, hoped Europeans would show generosity and empathy.
3: The decision to leave your own country and seek refuge in another foreign country is really an extremely difficult decision. People, when they flee, normally in an open conflict like Syria, you have little time to think really, what are you going to take, for example? You just grab your children and you just get the hell out of there because it's just too dangerous. So often you are arriving with little personal items you normally don't find in time or your documents to take with you. So there is this feeling of being a, a, a person without any identity. And then to become a foreigner in a foreign land, it's another language. It's another system. So there is not only that loss of self-confidence and self-esteem, but also there is the challenge of how we're going to get on with life. That feeling of uncertainty has a traumatic toll on their psychology. The fear of the unknown, what's tomorrow and how we're going to survive. And this is actually where the aid community can come to support in different ways. Have
0: donor countries, I'm thinking particularly of, of Europe, have they really stepped up to the plate the way you wanted them to?
3: The perceptions that they're always refugees are always a burden is really an unfair one because they really contribute positively to the economies they're in. As far as Syrians are concerned, and if I take Germany as an example, they've received 560,000. The level of integration is very high. Syrians are very resourceful people. They're highly educated. Uh, they're skillful. They don't want to really be a burden on anybody. If given the opportunity, they can fend for themselves. Almost 3 quarter of those in Germany learn the language and have a job. They become taxpayers. So, you know, as far as Europe, we need a human rights approach. We need borders to remain open. We need refugees to be accepted, registered, and they need to be supported. They are the people no country wants, the
1: families of ISIS. Our hall is the largest, now holding
0: nearly
3: 75,000 people."
0: But with every passing year, the war became more fragmented, more cruel. The attempts to bring peace had faded, overtaken by a coalition to defeat Islamic State. Once again, civilians were in the firing line. When the last ISIS town in Syria fell, Fabrizio Carboni was one of the first aid workers allowed into Al-Hol camp, where women and children, some of them the wives and children of foreign fighters, were being held.
1: All my life I will remember entering into this camp where you had a transit area where all the people arrived. And um, there was a mother who was laying. She she was very weak. She, She was dying. And you had around her, six of seven children looking at her. And um, as a father, to see those children helpless, seeing probably their mother dying in front of them, it's something I will carry all all my life because it represents an aspect of war and conflict which uh, we often don't see. Because it's moving, but it's unspectacular. It's not the bombing of Mosul. It's not the the big explosion. It's not the the movement of troops. It's not loud. It's it, it's very quiet. It's no movement. People staying still. If you don't pay attention, you don't even realize what's happening. And and this is for me another memory of Syria, which will stay with me because this scene of children seeing their mother dying slowly, I'm sure it was repeated hundreds if not thousands of times in the country.
0: Some of the developed countries who taught the loudest about human rights really seemed to, to wash their hands of their citizens and the children in those camps
1: oh it's 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 uh for us as humanitarian actor it's it's devastating because we defend values which are the the minimum you know actually the, the humanitarian value it's very it's a bare minimum it's just you know you can't kill people out of combat people out of combat when wounded should be protected. And and we have special emphasis on children, on women. I mean, nothing spectacular, nothing above the bare minimum. And for us to promote those values, to defend those values, we need those values to be shared. And when you have states who for decades not just promoted those values, but lectured other states... About those values when those very same state lecturing the rest of the world are themselves affected by violence are themselves affected by conflict and suddenly they say yes you know what we said that below 18 years old children in conflict are victims but in our case actually no no because we are in an exceptional situation that's devastating for our credibility for the credibility of the rules and and the values we defend which we should never forget were developed mainly after after the second world war you know it doesn't come out of just you know fantasy from 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 enlightened people no it's the result of a deadly and tragic history and we tend to forget it arriving at the un's geneva headquarters the Russian Foreign Minister and U.S. Secretary of State began a second day of talks...
0: With... All those peace negotiations in Geneva didn't save that mother or thousands like her. The first two or three rounds of talks began with a sense of optimism in a bright media spotlight. It's been, sadly, another week of setbacks when it comes to finding peace in Syria. World powers have again failed to set a date for an international... Now, a decade later... Efforts at genuine peace have become bogged down in endless discussions over the wording of a new constitution. Does Jan Eglund think there was ever a real chance to bring the conflict to
2: an end? Could it have ended earlier? Yes. I mean, this is perhaps one of the major mistakes of Syria. Little by little, too many started to treat it as if it was some kind of a continuous natural disaster, we cannot really do it uh, except look at it and feel pity for the victims of the natural disaster. This was man-made from A to Z. In Syria, I would really blame Russia and Iran, perhaps also some of the other regional powers, the Gulf countries, uh, Turkey, etc., for bringing fuel to the fire. Certainly, the, the, the government, later on, those extremists who joined the armed opposition groups. I mean, there, there's a lot of blame to go around here. It's Simply all of us who worked to end it were too weak compared to all of those who added fuel to the fire.
0: Do you think there were opportunities missed?
2: There was one seminal opportunity, and that was the Kofi Annan plan, 20. 14, wasn't it? Which, in my view, was a step by step, excellent approach to end it with uh, elections, constitutional reform, uh, minority protection, all sorts of good things, really. At that point, Russia, the United States, Iran, Turkey, the Gulf countries should have said to each other we need to pull through this plan. we are supporting competing horses in this race but we're playing with fire. let's drag them to the table, let's convince them to uh, agree on the Kofi Annan plan. That was the lost opportunity and and you know I, I will blame forever the leaders at that time that they didn't help it be realized.
0: And so the war sputters on. The calls for democracy from those first demonstrators a decade ago have never been addressed. Instead, millions of Syrians are refugees. The homes they fled in ruins. So what are the chances of return? Eamon Garaybe again.
3: Every year we uh, conduct a survey asking them, how do you see the future? Do you plan to return in the next six months, next 12 months, After two years, never. Most of the responses in the past has been is that 75% of the Syrians say, yes, return is our ultimate solution. Syria is our country, and we would like to go back and to contribute to its rebuilding. Our problem is always with when and how. I think what we are concerned with is the following. Um, Ten years into the conflict, you almost have a, a completely new generation born and raised in exile i tell you, last time I was visiting a Syrian family in northern Lebanon, I asked the guy, I said, what about return? I mean, you've been here for about nine years. Do you ever think that you will go back to Syria? And he said, yes, when the conditions are, are right. His 12-year-old daughter almost looked at him and he said, well, maybe you will go back, but I, I don't believe that, you know, she has not seen Syria before. Let's remember that. So this is what it means to have 10 years in exile. You have a generation that has no real connection with, the, with their mother country.
0: I don't suppose, though, the UN Refugee Agency, obviously you're there to support people who have had to flee war and persecution. You don't really want to be having to do that
3: for a decade. Certainly not. We did not really plan to have this for a decade. In fact, there is really genuine fear that, you know, this support may begin to wind down because of donor fatigue, because simply enough is enough how long we're going to support that conflict. We may be in for another decade if Syria is not fixed. I mean, let's be realistic. We are, you know, within the humanitarian community. Our job is to present the realities of what it means to be a refugee for 10 years to The donors for support, but also to all the governments who have influence on the Syria crisis, to remind them that really we need to bring this to a close because the longer this drags on, the more difficult the solution—a durable solution—for them to go back will be.
0: Ten years on, the aid agencies are still pleading for support, pleading for access, and pleading above all for a political solution, but there is no question says Fabrizio Carboni,
1: of giving up. It's the nature of our work. As humanitarian, we have to be always very humble and never forget why we were created. And and I believe that sometimes we tend to forget it. Sometimes um, we we lack, in my view, and that's my very personal opinion, we, we lack humility. We were created to preserve human life and dignity while a political process or whatever process would provide peace and stability to a place. That's why we are a neutral organization. That's why we don't you know, comment on who's wrong and who's right. So when we join or when people decide to join a humanitarian action, they should be clear about the intention. If it's peace in the world, that's the wrong job. If it's to preserve the basic minimum and fight every day to preserve the dignity and life of people that's what we are it's a tough job with moments of of grace but when we manage to do something it's really uh, something which compensate very often the the frustration you know when we manage to have the food going into some places it's such a such a reward
3: After a decade of conflict, Syria has fallen off the front page. And yet, the situation remains a living nightmare.
0: What then, when the history books are written, will be said about the United Nations, about its efforts to bring peace to Syria, and the attempts by humanitarian agencies based in Geneva to help civilians? The last word goes to Jan Eglund.
2: It was unsuccessful in the sense of being able to protect civilians from horrors. That's a a horrific failure for all of us. But the main blame on those who carried the guns and who did the crimes and those who supported them. In terms of how many people got their daily bread, their health services, the disease control. Much of this humanitarian work have been able to save millions. So let's also remember, against all the odds, tens of thousands of humanitarian workers, most of them Syrians working for other Syrians, led and coordinated by humanitarians in Geneva and elsewhere. And I think they should be proud of that. Even though There was a war lasting for 10 years and the diplomats and the politicians failed us.
0: A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo. You can hear more by going to our website, Swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too. From the future of the United Nations to a look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen, folks. Thank you again for listening.
1: discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the swiss connection podcast for a mind expanding experience with swiss info listen on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time